0: This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, welcome to the brand new Bailey Gifford Prize podcast series, which is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. I'm Razia Iqbal. I'm a presenter for BBC News and I have been a judge of the Bailey Gifford Prize. I'll be your host for the series. We have some fantastic guests coming up, including some past winners, some guest hosts, and we'll also be following the 2019 prize as it unfolds in the autumn for the long list shortlist and and winner announcements. These podcasts are part of the prize's 21st anniversary celebrations and we're in the studio today with the prize director, Toby Mundy, who will tell us a bit more about the history and heritage of the most prestigious non-fiction prize in the UK and what we can expect to hear in future episodes. Toby, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start by just getting a sense of the history of this prize because it's 21 years old and you could argue that it's grown up, it's come of age.
1: It's coming of age, yeah. Um, Prize was started in 1999, um, really as a successor to what was then called the NCR Prize, the National Cash Registers with the sponsors. And that was done with in conjunction with various booksellers. And when that prize uh, came to a natural end, there was a real opportunity, and a group of people came together, of whom I was not one at that point, and felt that um, it was critical that there could be a general non-fiction prize that could do for non-fiction what the Booker Prize does for fiction, which is to rec- try to recognise simply the best books of the year. And and that was the beginning in 1999. It's been through a few different incarnations then, but essentially it's the same... Uh, same company that runs it, a non not-for-profit company that runs it, same group of people behind it, and um, it's gone now 21 years, yeah.
0: Let's talk about non-fiction, because what is it that non-fiction encompasses? Because it, you could argue that it's quite a lot of things. I mean, I work in news, which is non-fiction, until Donald Trump came along, of course, and in which case it was fake news. But w- what is it about non-fiction that makes everyone think, OK, this is something that I know is the truth this is a true story
1: well there's a sort of philosophical answer to that question which i might not be the best person to give and then there's a sort of uh, moral answer which i may be better able to give so the the, the the philosophical one is basically a book in which things purporting to be facts are true um and that you know we could philosophers have spent thousands of years arguing about the, the absolute nature of truth but nonetheless um books that grounded in fact that tell us a story about the world based upon events and uh, real events and real things that happen in the world and most nonfiction is eligible I mean the the, the rules are up on the website and I haven't memorized them all but most things that you would expect to be eligible in the prize of this kind from travel writing to biography to memoir to history to politics to philosophy to science writing uh, these are all in reference books we don't do so cookery books um, cookery books poetry we don't do um, but you know, the main narrative non-fiction categories are all eligible for the prize.
0: It's quite a wide-ranging set of it books is. that you've genres that you've outlined there. I mean, for example, a, a, a travel book. I wonder whether a conventional travel book would be eligible, for instance.
1: You mean a guide to? Yeah, a guide uh, to a country. A guide to Sardinia. Yeah, no, it's not. Because <laughs> <laughs> essentially, it's a reference book. Right. Um, I mean, you were a judge in 2017, and, and you saw the, the amazing. I mean, the range of books that you you saw was tremendous, wasn't it?
0: Absolutely, it was. It was incredible, actually, and the, and and it ranged from the the very slight that it was actually quite easy to um, perhaps dismiss is not the right word, or at least to put to one side and and decide that they were not eligible. And and I suppose some of those were. Some of those were ones that you might imagine would have made it. And I, and I wonder about this idea of what is it about a good non-fiction book that elevates it?
1: Well, you were a judge. What was it for you?
0: Well, I think probably I'm reminded of um, the, the adage that goes with this prize, which is that uh, all the best stories are true. And because I work in news... Mm. And on a daily basis, I'm dealing with 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 true stories or what one assumes what we're trying to find out to be the truth. I'm inclined to agree with that, but I also think that it's something more. As a lover of fiction as well as nonfiction, I, I think it's it's about amazing storytelling mm-hmm. about things that are true. I couldn't agree with you more. So the elegance of the writing has to be there. Yeah, the structure yeah. of the story and how it unfolds for the reader has yes. to be present. But then something else. I mean, there is something about the kind of erudition of the writer, perhaps, the, uh, the nature of the research, how well they've used all those things.
1: All of the above, I'm sure. I mean, I've, I've never judged it. So you're much closer and better able to answer that question than me. But I've been watching it up close for a few years now. And I do think that the kind of, the kind of person who can master a field, whether it's a very big one or quite a narrow one, or who can crystallise a sequence of events about their lives, perhaps in the form of a memoir, and can do so in a way that is original and authoritative and credible, and then can write beautiful sentences. I think these people are as rare as hen's teeth. And I think they're unbelievably rare. It's so hard to be able to do all those things. And you meet a lot of people who know a lot of stuff, but most of them can't write that well. And the people who know a lot of stuff about whatever their subject is, and then can write really good sentences, they are incredibly rare, and they should be recognised and rewarded by a prize like this and by culture in general i think they deserve it are so it's so hard to do that
0: and given everything that you've said the backlist of this prize yes. is pretty stellar
1: well, yes, it's incredible, really. And winning the prize has taken some books from what you might consider to be slightly off the mainstream and catapulted them into the mainstream. So East West Street by Philippe Sands, which was the winner before you were a judge in 2016. That was a book that had been wonderfully reviewed and had been was doing well. But by winning the prize, it, it, its sales and profile were, were transformed. Uh, H is for Hawk, Helen MacDonald's book um, was already doing well, but it just went into another massive level. And she, her career has achieved tremendous lift-off. Uh, astonishing books, slightly ahead of their time. Barbara Demick's book on knife, uh, real lives in North Korea, nothing to envy. Uh, remarkable and important books. The suspicions of Mr. Witcher, of course. Kate Summerscales' book, which this uh, was, wasn't the only award it won in that year of publication, but a tremendous success. And no, it, it's been. I mean, uh, novelists like Jonathan Coe have won it. Um, it's that's a very 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 distinguished group of group of books and authors. A Margaret Macmillan, of course, as well.
0: I mean, I think you can tell from the backlist that. The, the quirky as well as what is absolutely central in people's minds in terms of the news. For example, uh Rajiv Chandrasekharan's Imperial Life in the Emerald City, which was mm-hmm. about the green zone in it in was. Baghdad, in Iraq. I mean those sorts of stories would have been in people's minds, but what he did with it is the thing that makes makes it stand out. And I and I suppose that's the other thing as well, isn't it? That I I wonder whether we are going back into an era where wanting to read something in depth that is true is increasing and the appetite that there is out there for that is growing.
1: Yes, I would say that. But I I think, so we're looking for new ways into stories. Now, Hisham Matar's book, The Return, of course, tells the story of his father's murder and abduction by the Gaddafi regime in Libya. But it's actually, of course, a, a history of Gaddafi's Libya. And the book is the book is a, a magnificent book and was shortlisted in 2016 um, when the year philippe sand's won um, but that it it, it as well as telling an incredible human story, it was an extraordinary way for ordinary readers to read about the history of Libya under Gaddafi, which was as strange as anything you could make find in a novel.
0: And deeply lyrical and beautiful to and read the, uh, also. All of
1: those things, yeah. It's a remarkable book.
0: I, I wonder, in the context of everything that we're talking about, uh, you know, I, I I mentioned that we are, of course, living in the age of, of fake news, and, and I wonder what that does to the world of non-fiction. Yeah,
1: I'm a bit... So... I'm not totally sold on this idea of fake news. I mean, you and I may be about the same age, but essentially we grew up in tabloid land and there was a lot of made-up stuff in the tabloids when we were younger people, even younger people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, newspapers, some newspapers have been making up stuff for a long time. But I think what's changed is what somebody once called, I think Damien Thompson, a journalist, called counter-knowledge, which is this idea of alternative knowledge that could circulate via the internet in through closed groups who didn't have to be challenged by conventional sources and authorities. And that clearly is completely new. So the explosion of anti vaxxers, the explosion of flat earthers, which makes my head spin, and 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 the existence of just uh, alternative, in what do they call it, alternative facts was Trump's spokesperson, wasn't it? Alternative, exactly, yeah. uh, that, that is part of what we have to fight against, it's part of what the purpose of this prize is to fight against. I think it's part of what our sponsors like as well.
0: The, the legitimacy, I suppose, also of um, conspiracy theorists in that they may not be legitimate, but they're given a platform and a way in which they can speak about their conspiracy theories that gives them some credibility which needs to be consistently challenged. I think in
1: the pre-internet age conspiracy theorists, let's say they're on the far right, would have to have subscribed to strange magazines and could occasionally have gone to pubs and stuff to meet other people but essentially they were relatively isolated from like-minded people. Well that's not true anymore and they can find hundreds, thousands, maybe even more people who can vindicate and validate their ideas and some of those ideas are just silly and some of them are alarming and whatever they are One of the things a book prize like this does is to put out into the public arena um, alternatives to that, that, that that validate scholarship and research and storytelling. And the storytelling part is really important. I mean, if we want to know about the Wall Street crash, none of us go home and read a textbook. We read a narrative. Human beings outside of upper echelons of academia can only really understand history or science or other things through narrative through stories that's the only way we can take it in
0: and through individual stories as well even if you're not even if for example with Margaret Macmillan's The Peacemakers you know the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 we know that this is a book that is full of a cast of incredibly familiar politicians. But one of the things that she manages to do is to continually remind you of the impact of what these politicians Absolutely. did. And and I suppose that's a way of going into a story that makes it um, accessible as well as reminds people that they're not lost in all of this, in the, in the big story.
1: Absolutely. And, and Professor Macmillan found in that uh, peace conference of 1919 a perfect I mean I say small story a relatively small story to tell a huge story a turning point in the beginning of the 20th century where an old world ended and a new world was brought into being one that we would later discover with the benefit of hindsight would be disastrous have its own disastrous consequences and there's there's I mean uh, the, the um, James Shapiro book 1599 a year in the life of Shakespeare again that's another turning point book that's uh, the transition from a sort of Elizabethan age to James the, the age of James and the one that that, that, that would follow um they off some of those some books that, that crystallise a, a moment of change can have done very well in this prize in the past.
0: And I and I I'm really struck by voices that we don't hear. Mm-hmm. For example, with Anna Funda's Stasi Land and um and also uh, Barbara Demick's uh, Nothing to Envy: Real Lives in North Korea. You know, a country that for a very very long time has been closed off and still is, even though it's in the news an awful lot, yeah. still feels like it's closed off. And and I think in a way, the joy of not just judging this prize, but it being a guide for people who want to read an astonishing story is that you are hearing voices that you would not necessarily hear in the daily factual news in in the landscape of book prizes, mm-hmm. we know that uh, prizes do many things their functions are are various and and in the context of nonfiction, I wonder whether you can outline for us how what the impact is of winning the Bailey Gifford for individuals. You, you you talked about Philippe Sands and, and how that book had been well reviewed but then it just kind of went into the stratosphere and it's the same for the year that I judged the prize with How to Survive a Plague and David France I mean yeah. he was a, a, a man who had made a film pretty much about this story but winning this prize really changed things for him.
1: It, uh, yeah, an incredible book. I think it does several things. It gives the author a very substantial check and no writer would turn that down, and nor should they. I mean, I think we, we all sorts of people get rewarded for less good things than writing quality non books, so that's a very good thing in itself. Uh, it ignites the overseas marketplace, so um, a book that wins the Bailey Gifford Prize will very often then be translated into other languages where previously that hadn't happened, um, and sometimes quite a lot of languages. Um, and then there is a sales spike as well. Um, it's not always the same kind of sales spike, um, but... In every instance, the sales will go up several hundred percent from where they were. And sometimes it will pave the way for a very big paperback bestseller and and a long life for the book. The book will probably remain almost all of our back catalogue in front of us here. All um, 20 20 of them are almost all still in print.
0: Presumably there is an impact of being mentioned on or being selected for the shortlist. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. It will help sales along. It's a proper accolade of the kind that you might put on your CV that will improve your earning power over time. Uh, it will publishers put it on the cover of their paperbacks for a reason. Shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize or shortlisted for the Booker Prize; these are things that cue that, that that signal to readers in the marketplace that this book has distinction.
0: I'm excited by the prospect of bringing together some of the past winners to to talk about the things that we're discussing a little bit. You know, the impact of of winning the prize uh, on on their lives as authors, but but also just as a As a way of reminding people about the longevity of the books and the strength of the stories, I'm I'm really looking forward to that.
1: Absolutely. I can't wait. And I, I think there are some wonderful combinations of winners and previous shortlisted authors within this list in front of us. And they were all hugely interesting people. And just to hear them talk about their research methods and that moment when they thought, that moment when they were wondering if they had a good story, to really knowing that this was going to be. Um, something they could write at book length and then knowing that they were really producing good work. And w- that they, to, I'm curious about whether some of these writers actually knew how good the work they were producing was at the time or whether you're so up to your eyes in the detail that can you actually see the bigger picture? I think the best writers can see the bigger picture.
0: I, I'm sure they can, but when you look at something like... Um the H is for Hawk. You know that is such a personal memoir, but it's also a lot more besides. And 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 similarly yeah. with with Philippe Sands and East West Street. You know the the impetus, the impulse for that is is to try and look at something that was really quite personal for Philippe, and mm-hmm. then it becomes a much much bigger story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, East I mean East East West Street, um, uh which was the first winner when it was relaunched as the Bailey Gifford Prize. Previously, it had been the Samuel Johnson Prize for a, a period. So although the not-for-profit company that looks after the prize is still the Samuel Johnson Prize, <clears throat> we were lucky enough to get Bailey Gifford as new sponsors, and we were changing the name to accommodate the, to accommodate uh, their sponsorship, as, as, as we should have done. Um, for... For Philippe, I mean, that, that, that year, that first year, we had a Pulitzer Prize winner in the form of Margot Jefferson, uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich, who'd won the Nobel Prize, Hisham Matar and Philippe. So it was four remarkably good books. And they all had a very strong first-person voice. And they were all using first-person to uh, tell very big stories.
0: Toby, thank you so much. That is all we have time for today. Do join us in episode one, which is out in April, when we'll be joined by two non-fiction heavyweights and past prize winners. Anna Funder and Philippe Sands. To find out more about the prize, do head over to our website www.thebaileygiffordprize.com or join the conversation on our social media channels. Search for at BG Prize on Twitter and at Bailey Gifford Prize on Facebook. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast series and awards ceremony. And of course, our wonderful prize sponsors, Bailey Gifford, for their continued support. Bye for now. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.